reading today is from James, James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits, first fruits of all he created. This is the word of God. Good evening, guys, and hey, if we've not yet met, I'm Jody, and um, please do join at the pub afterwards. I'd love to get to know... Well, maybe not all of you guys, but some of you anyway. And uh, if you're here tonight and this is your first time in church, I wonder what you're thinking. This might all be a little bit strange for you. People are reading some words off the screen like a Christian karaoke, and, and then we're all saying stuff together, and there's people in their clothes in the water, and now we're talking about holiness. And so uh, buckle in for quite the ride. But basically, you get to see like behind the curtains of what we weird Christians get to talk about. And hopefully you get something from it. Um, but I personally am so thankful for the last few weeks. I've been spending this time looking about what holiness is and how we can live it out wherever we are placed. And if you haven't been here, I'd recommend checking out the talks on YouTube or Spotify or wherever. Because, I mean, firstly, they'll be far better than anything I could offer you tonight. And secondly, it's totally redefined my understanding of holiness. Before I became a Christian, I thought holiness was for boring people. It made boring people more boring. And then when I became a Christian in my 20s, it was like I was given this kind of fresh slate, a kind of clean start, as it were. And I was almost a little bit worried about dirtying this new, pure identity that I'd been given. Almost like I'd been wearing a white outfit. Like, who does that? Dumb decision. But then I was like worried about drinking wine or eating a roast dinner or where I sat or who I sat next to because I was worried that I would get myself dirty again. And to be honest, when it came to looking at holiness, I was always feeling a little bit guilty or just slightly inadequate. And I think I'd kind of missed the point of what holiness was. And so, as we've heard over the last few weeks, for God to be holy, it means it's like this beautiful, compelling, moral perfection. It's like God being good, and by good we mean like really good, not just like what we say is good, but God's kind of good. It's everything about who God is and what he does. Holiness is the very essence of God. It's the stuff that makes God, God. Holiness is Jesus. And then we, his people, his church, are called to be holy as he is holy. And the best news is that it's not uh, by our merits that we become holy, but it's in our position in Christ. And we then spend the rest of our lives trying to live life close to Jesus, becoming like him, doing the things that Jesus did, the holy one. And over the last few weeks, if I'm honest, in my own times of reflection, I've been thinking, God, these are so amazing and inspiring. 
But like, guys, don't you understand? There are so many things in my life that are stopping me from living out this life, from being holy. Like, I hear these, I'm inspired on a Sunday, and by Tuesday, I'm already struggling. Anyone else relate? Nah, you guys are a holy bunch, aren't you? And so tonight, we're going to look at two questions. What stops me, a, an ordinary human, living out this holy life? And secondly, how do we overcome that? And so firstly, what stops us? One of my earliest memories is me and my cousin and the rest of our family, I was like four years old, at Butlins. Anyone ever been to Butlins? Does that thing still exist? Um, it's like heaven on earth, I'm sure. And uh, what you must know about me is I am terrible at dancing. Like, I suck. I have no rhythm, no grace, no ability, but all of the confidence. And so uh, I have a lot of fun, and they think it's a good decision to put me and my cousin in this dance booth. My cousin can dance. I cannot dance, and I was like this cute little chubby four-year-old, and uh, she wanted to sing along and dance along to S Club 7. Yeah, come on, we've got some S Club 7 fans in here. I love them too. And uh, anyone guess the song? What's up? Yeah, Reach for the Stars, absolutely. And it's, uh, I won't sing it. <laughs> You'll be thankful for that later. But the lyrics are, reach for the stars, climb every mountain higher, reach for the stars, Follow your heart's desire. This is the very line that I've grown up with. It shaped my life from four years old. Do what makes you happy. Follow your heart's desire. The heart wants what the heart wants. And a fun fact, I actually broke up with someone at 17 using that line and, uh, and finished with a very witty, so I thought, uh, line of saying, well, the heart wants what the heart wants, but... My heart doesn't want you. <laughs> horrendous, horrendous, and this is why I'm still single today. <laughs> and this is a great line. Don't take that wisdom from me. Don't use that ever. <laughs> but this is a great line until we realize who coined it. There's an amazing, uh, well, I mean, take it as you will, he's a great American film uh, maker and actor, a guy called Woody Allen. And he coined this time for the first time when he was being interviewed on an incredibly inappropriate relationship. He had been with a woman for a long time, they had adopted children together, and he had functioned as a stepfather to her previous children. And then shortly after uh, one of those children came of age, she was 21 years old, um, he entered into a sexual relationship with her at 21. He was 56. He had been functioning as a stepdad to her. And in an interview, when probed, they were trying to get some kind of sense of remorse out of him or some kind of guilt. And he basically shrugged his shoulders and said, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. And this saying has somehow entered the belief system of an entire generation it's become a justification from anything from adultery to eating chocolate cake. And it's this issue that James wrote about 2,000 years ago. James, as we heard earlier, so he is the half-brother of Jesus, and he became like a pillar and a peacemaker of the early church. And this book is the legacy and the wisdom of his collective teachings, all of the things he'd got from Jesus, all of the things he'd learned along the way. And basically, James, I think, is just a little bit nosy. Like, he wants to get up in our business. He wants to challenge the way we live. And James is effectively writing to us here today, St. Aldates, informing us, verse 14, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth to death. 
The issue with these temptations is that they can get us into trouble. Like, I'm going to be real, I'm going to level with you, and I ask, please don't judge. Uh, but sometimes I have, like, these thoughts. And, for instance, earlier I was walking along the river with my dad, and uh, he was kind of leaning over a little bit, looking at these ducks. Everything in me wanted to push him in. <laughs> That's not okay. Thankfully, I have some self-control. Or I used to play football, and I really love dogs, and I would never hurt dogs. Um, but sometimes, if there's a small, yappy dog, I kind of just want to kick it. And I don't, I don't. You'll be thankful to know. But like, I'm an awful human. <laughs> this idea has been totally popularized in our modern culture and society, and it's been around for a while, and it's embedded in all that we do. Your desires are the truth, and this is one of the scariest ideas floating around. And in honesty, if we take the time to resist these desires, to question them, or even to say no to them, we are deemed to be fundamentally disingenuine to ourselves, and we are then, therefore, not being our authentic selves. We are told that these temptations, these desires, are what define us, and so lean into them, follow them, live your truth, live how you desire. And I must admit, at face value, like, this sounds fun. I'd like to do some more of this fun stuff until I take a step back as a somewhat logical person and realize, though it might be funny for a moment to push my mum into a river and she's only got one functioning leg, it would be horrendous. That would be a bad idea. All the very construct of governments and society and countries and continents are predicated on exactly people doing not what they want to do, whenever they want to do it, with whomever they want to do it with. Like, we have police forces in place, and one of the reasons that is, is to keep people like me from doing stupid stuff that would cause chaos. And these sayings make great hashtags, but for a terrible existence. Like, no, Jody, don't follow your own heart. Jeremiah says the heart is a wicked and deceitful thing. Who can know it? The answer is not me, not I. I have no idea where these temptations come from sometimes. The only one who knows my heart inherently is the one who created it. God himself Question these desires. Search your heart and allow him to as well. Follow your heart is one of the craziest ideas or pieces of advice I've ever been given. Thanks, S Club 7. But what we're talking about here, the heart, is kind of closer to what the New Testament writers refer to as the flesh. Bit weird. But what does it mean? So one of the meanings of the flesh are like these animalistic cravings of our body, like apart from God. And in Romans, Paul further defines it as our sinful passions. Basically, the flesh is like our primal drive for self-gratification, especially when it comes to sensuality, like food and sex, and also just pleasure in general. It's our instincts for survival and domination and control and desires, really, that if we're totally honest, are a little bit in all of us. We all have desires that sometimes we just don't know what to do with. And sometimes our desires are higher and nobler, and they lead to freedom and peace and love, and others lead to death and slavery and fear. And according to an early church legend, St. Augustine, the problem of the human condition isn't that we don't know how to love, but that it's we love the wrong things, or that we love the right things, but in the wrong order. For example, it's not bad to love your job. I love my job. I'm not just saying that because my boss is in the front row. I love my job, and I hope you love your job too. But if we loved our jobs more than we loved 
kids, our kids, then it would be a slightly disordered desire, and it would affect the way that we can relate to our kids. And it's not bad to love your kids. Again, I hope you do. But if you loved your kids more than you loved, your, loved God, then again, it would be a slightly disordered desire, and it would affect the way that we related to both. It's not bad to love wine. Jesus loved wine. It's not bad to love intimacy and sex. God created us that way. But when these things become the things that we look to for identity, for belonging, for a sense of salvation, it becomes a disordered desire. And these desires are always reinforced by common phrases that we're hearing again and again. The heart wants what the heart wants. Follow your heart. You do you. Just do it. Speak your truth and be true to yourself. And when we listen to these cultural imperatives, the self becomes the new God, the new sense of spiritual authority, the new morality. But all of these things place a crushing weight on the self that we were never meant to carry on our own. And it's all well and good saying, you know, be yourself, follow your desires. But which desire do we follow? You know, we're in the lead up to summer at the moment and um, trying to, you know, get that bikini bod, maybe some of you guys are too, and uh, hitting the gym slightly more, trying to eat some, like, more broccoli and stuff. Um, if anyone is a nutritionist and knows how, what to eat other than broccoli, hit me up. But I'm in Sainsbury's and I'm buying this broccoli and I'm in the checkout queue. And on one side of me, we have a magazine rack and we've got, like, men's health and women's health and these incredibly sculpted people. And I'm like, I want that body. But on the other side of this aisle, we have chocolate and crisps and Mars bars and beers. And I'm like, I want those things too. And as I stand there in line, I experience two very true and real primal desires. On one hand, I want a six-pack of abs. On the other hand, I want a six-pack of Budweiser and the cheesecake. <laughs> like, so what am I to do? Both of these desires are true to my authentic, my authentic self, but they are mutually exclusive. I can't have my cake and eat it. See what I did? <laughs> and so, what do I do with this great existential problem? I buy, obviously, you'll be glad to know, women's health, and I'm, I'm flicking through you know, the top ab workouts for 2023 whilst eating a Mars bar. <laughs> I'll start tomorrow. But we all face desires like this every day, and some are more serious and sensitive. Like, I want to get up and soak my heart in scripture and prayer, but I also want to stay up late at night watching Ted Lasso. I desperately want to look after my mental health, but instead of feeling my emotions and processing them well, I grab a glass of wine. I want to live a deeply grateful and radically generous life. But instead of stewarding my money well, I look to the next best new pair of trainers that I want to buy and think about upgrading the car that I already have a perfectly good one. And we could go on for ages because really, this is the nature of the human experience. But what's easy to miss in this modern view of things is that our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. And what I mean by that is in the moment of temptation, the raging fire of desire is your flesh feels overwhelming and almost irresistible. But these desires really are not the truest, deepest desires of my soul. What is it that we really want? And maybe you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you'll think, well, I want the abs. 
I want the good times. I want the beer. I don't want any of this stuff. This is all a bit weird and intense. Well, fair play for you sticking around. Had I heard this talk six years ago, I would have been out the tour 15 minutes ago. So well done for staying. And maybe you're not even sat here kind of feeling this gaping hole or a tugging of desires. But what I want to say is there is more. There is more for all of us. My biggest desires in life were to live a happy life, to play football well, to have fun, to party hard, to have success. And these desires, hear me, are not bad in and of themselves. But I got to 21 and I'd realized, if I was being totally honest with myself, I was always wanting more. I was wanting more money, more guys, more parties, more applause, more followers, more success. And it took me some time, but when I went deep enough into myself, I realized that that's something more that I was aching for was fulfilled in God himself. To live in his full love, to yield to his gentle peace, to know the kind of joy that only he can offer, to place my trust and my hope in a life that will come where there are no more tears, no more pain, and to let my body become a place where God himself dwells. My point is this, our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love and really to be holy, are sabotaged by the stronger, more instinctive desires of our flesh. Do whatever you want to do is exactly what we're told to do by culture. And as the pop icon Billie Eilish once said in an interview, she said, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's all about what makes you happy. But just because something makes you happy or feel good doesn't mean it is good. Sometimes it takes us actually from further than where we want to be. In Galatians, Paul warns us where the desires of our flesh, these temptations will take us if we give in to them. And I wonder if any of them sound familiar. He says it will lead us to sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And I think of Tinder and the hookup culture and the work Christmas party and Fridays in Attic and Mondays in Bridge and... Wednesdays and fishies. It leads us to hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage. And I see that every day as I look on Twitter and in the news, and I experience the cancel culture that is rife at the moment. We read of selfish ambition and dissensions and factions, and it only takes one look at the politicians in this world, or I see it in my friends who are trying to stand on top of each other's shoulders just to get one up of each other in universities or in work settings. And it leads us to envy, the internet, or walking through the Westgate, or scrolling on Instagram. Well, lastly, he said it will lead us to drunkenness and orgies and the like. And again, one look on Netflix or Amazon Prime, anything like that, we can see it. And some of you are like, this sounds amazing. And others are like, actually, this isn't what I want. I don't want this. And particularly when we compare it to them where Paul tells us that the Spirit of God will take us. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is true freedom. It's not doing whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. This freedom doesn't actually exist. And so maybe you're like, go on then, Joe, it's, well, you've, you've hammered it home. We get it. We get it. But how do we do it? How do we even begin to think about resisting these desires and reordering our desires. 
And in honesty, in my kind of personality type, it is easy to jump to the rules and the regulations and the guidelines that help us, and that help us kind of perceive our morality and our moral standards. But the problem with these things, these rules and laws, that they in themselves are powerless to change our desires, because that is a matter of the heart. The Christian concept of freedom is that we are freed as our desires begin to form to God's desires, and this is a work of the Spirit. And firstly, we have to underline all of this, and if you remember anything today, we have to remember that the pursuit of holiness must be anchored by the grace of God, otherwise it is doomed to fail. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he said, there is nothing that you could do to make God love you anymore, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you any less. And we will spend the rest of our lives living in light of that beautiful grace and mercy. But we've learned that true freedom, true holiness, holiness looks like not giving in to our every temptation. And so, as a feeble offering, I'm not an expert in this. You have to spend five minutes in my presence before. This is like not my bag. One of the best ways i found is just to get into the presence of God, to spend time with Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Puritan over 200 years ago, wrote a piece of work called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He basically says, we need a new affection that expels the darkness. The root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure, a more compelling joy. And that superior pleasure, that more compelling joy, is Jesus Christ the most holy and free man who has ever walked this earth, the one who desired us more than we could ever desire anything else, the one who desired us so much that he was willing to take on our sin, our brokenness, our temptations, our shame upon the cross where he sacrificed himself for us so that we, his people, could live in life of freedom, a life of holiness, He is the one who is funny and captivating and compelling and is beautiful beyond belief. The one who gave us his everlasting Holy Spirit so that we can fight this temptation, not through our willpower, but through his spiritual power, his divine power. So let me encourage you. Don't white-knuckle, stoically, religiously, legalistically pull up your boots and just wade on through. Tap into the infinitely stronger power of the Holy Spirit. And just as we come in to kind of finish, wrap this up, you might be asking, well, like, great, how? How do I do this? How do I even begin to think about tapping into this power that you've got, Jodie? I want to offer just two practical pieces of advice or offerings, really, of um, like holy habits or spiritual disciplines or however you want to put it. And the first is fasting. No practice of Jesus is more alien or neglected in the modern church than fasting. The idea of drawing on the Spirit's power, not through our mind, but through our stomach, sounds absurd, I'm fully aware. And yet fasting was one of the core practices of Jesus. What was Jesus doing in the wilderness when he was being tempted by the devil? He was fasting food. And I regularly hear people say, you know, like, I'm, I'm fasting other forms of, like, social media or TV, and that is great, but it's not fasting, it's abstinence, and it's still a really helpful practice. But fasting is a practice where we abstain from food for a period of time based on this biblical theology of our soul being a whole person. And so, to be clear, there are legitimate reasons why you might not fast, and that is totally okay, and 
do follow that, but um, like our body is a gift, and in some ways our soul, or our mind, our body, everything has kind of been corrupted in some form. And fasting is this beautiful way to turn our body into an ally with this fight against the flesh rather than an adversary. So my advice is just try it. Maybe give up a breakfast and a lunch one day and maybe just try spending some time praying and reading uh, during the time. See what happens. And just by way of warning, it probably won't feel great at first. I remember when I first tried it, I didn't like it. I liked lunch. I liked breakfast. And uh, I got a bit sad, got a bit anxious, and um, I gave in. Uh, and then I tried again and kept going. And this time I came like pure hangry. Like I was not pleasant to be around. But with regular practice, these feelings mostly go away, and they were replaced with a joy and contentment and a sense of intimacy with God. But it does take a while. And then lastly, the second practice I want to offer is a practice of confession. Again, if you're not used to church, it might sound a bit weird. And for us Westerners in the Protestant stream of church, this, I think, again, is probably the second most neglected practice of Jesus because it's been abused by the church so much. In its worst form, it has been a means of spiritual abuse. And so in a right reaction against it, we kind of just ignore it. We kind of attach it sometimes to something we do like uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, and we kind of say sorry to God in our minds and in our hearts before we take the bread and wine, and it's a beautiful but private thing. But for, but for, for, uh, but for confession to yield, not just forgiveness, but true freedom. We must drag our sin into the light and not keep them in solitary confinement. James writes, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There's a raw power and genuine freedom that comes when we name our sins in the presence of a loving community. And what I'm not gonna do is pull up each of you, you know, one by one and say like, tell me your worst sin in this world. What I'm talking about is more like the friendships, the family that we form, maybe in small groups throughout the week or within family dynamics. Like, feel free to ask each other, like, what is it that you're struggling with? And feel the freedom to love each other through it. And so the main thing I hope that we take away from this is that we fight and overcome these temptations, these desires, the flesh. And it's not through willpower, but through the Spirit's power. And we get access to that power via the practices of Jesus. And fasting and confession are just two especially helpful ones, but there are loads more to kind of experiment with. The key is to find ways of daily getting into the presence of God, of beholding Jesus, the one who loves you in spite and because of everything that you are, by living in reliance on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who makes us holy and in our everyday, ordinary lives. Amen. Amen.